Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our Sunday morning Bible study and our study of First Peter. If you got your Bibles and you'd like to follow along with us, uh, just turn to First Peter chapter four, and we'll be in verses one through seven. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is "Purposeful Holiness." Purposeful holiness. Um, let's go ahead and read our verses. It says this: Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. A couple weeks ago, I was um, listening to a, a podcast. Uh, it's called Ask uh, Pastor John. It's John Piper. And he received this uh, email from a Christian. It said this, I'm a relatively new Christian, and I have a problem with my church. I've noticed our sermons don't touch on sin, and they never call for repentance. I've asked one of the pastors about this, who said they're not preaching contradictory to the Bible. They've just decided to not talk directly about sin. They want to focus on the love of Jesus and his acceptance of sinners. It sounds good to me as an effort to attract lots of people into the church, but at the same time, I'm troubled that they don't preach repentance and obedience. And then this uh, listener of this podcast closed with this question, what do you think of a church that doesn't preach against particular sins? And of course, John Piper's answer to that was this, I think that church is profoundly defective and unfaithful to the Word of God. Let's ask ourselves this question this morning. Why would pastors or churches or church leaders presume to be wiser than the Scriptures in the way they speak to God's people? I ask that because I don't care where you go in the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the Gospels, whether it's the New Testament, you're going to always see two things proclaimed. Number one, is the good news of God's forgiveness and the and grace. But the second thing you're always going to see is a denunciation of sin and a call to repentance. Let me give you some examples. From the Old Testament, Malachi 3.5. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widows and the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the sojourner. In the Gospels, we see Jesus, for example, Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, speaking against the sin of lust. In Luke 6, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation, speaking against the sin of greed. And of course, Matthew 23 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, speaking against the sin of hypocrisy. And then you have examples like 1 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul tells us to flee from sexual immorality. 
So whether it's the prophets who come before Jesus, whether it's Jesus himself in the Gospels, or whether it's the apostles writing in the epistles, they all did the same thing. They all came out and denounced specific sins and called for repentance. They did this alongside a message of forgiveness. So if a church that doesn't want to speak against sin or preach against sin or teach against sin, if they're looking for some authority to do that or they're looking for for something to validate that, they're not going to find it in the Bible um, as we've seen. But here's the thing. There's an even more fundamental problem with a church like this and that is that these churches and pastors and teachers not they don't seem to understand how sanctification works. Now, I'm not sure if they're just making it up as they go, but one thing is crystal clear is they're not submitting to the pattern of, of Scripture. You see, the New Testament reveals to us how sanctification works. And, and, and what I mean by sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. Let, let's just put it that way. You know, when we're born again, uh, we come into this Christian life with a lot of baggage. Um, and then the, the, the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify us. He begins to clean us. He begins to strip a lot of that baggage away. And we call that sanctification. But it just it means becoming more beautiful like Jesus, more holy, more uh, kind, a, a better person, a more better representative of Jesus Christ, uh, if you will. And Scripture teaches us that the way sanctification occurs is by a combination of two things. On the one hand, God conquering sin for us, but on the other hand, God's command for us ourselves to kill sin. Uh, that's the pattern of Scripture. Any other approach, any other way this is taught uh, is just unbiblical. You cannot separate those two things. You can't separate God's conquering of sin and his commands for us uh, to kill it. I want to give you uh, four illustrations on that this morning. Here's the the first one. Number one, Romans chapter 6, which is one of the best illustrations. Paul says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So let's stop right here and talk about this. I, I, I tried to do a little picture here to help. But what does Paul mean when he says we are enslaved to sin? Well, think about before we come to Christ, we're, we're living this life and sin has control over us. I tried to, uh, on the screen here, I tried to uh, show this with these yellow lines. It's got its tendrils or its tentacles in us, if you will. It's it's in our brain. It's in our flesh. It's in our heart. It's in our nature. It's We are enslaved to it. We really have no other choice but to sin. And then Paul says this, you have died to sin. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, we were crucified with him. His death is applied to us. And, and Paul says, we have now died to sin. But as we said a few weeks ago, in the Bible, death never means a ceasing to exist. Right? Even when we die a physical death, we don't cease to exist. Our spirit is just separated from our, our body. So when 
Paul says we've died to sin. He's talking about a separation from sin. And you can kind of picture it this way. Uh, we are now a new creation. We're a, our spirit has been born anew. We were spiritually dead. Now we are spiritually alive. And we're still living in this body of flesh, but we are not bound by it anymore. Now, sin, we're no longer a slave to sin. Sin can still influence us, but it has to do it in different ways. It has to lure us. It has to entice us. It has to deceive us like Satan did with Eve uh, in the garden, it has to say, hey, come on over here. My way is better than God's ways. But it cannot make us do anything. We're no longer enslaved to it. So for the very first time, we have a choice. L- listen to Paul as he goes on in Romans chapter 6. He says this now, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin. You see, you were enslaved to sin. Now you've died to it. Now you actually have a choice not to sin for the very first time. And what does Paul say to us? Don't do it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present your members as instruments to unrighteousness. So right here, we have this wonderful uh, scriptural pattern for sanctification. God conquers sin through his death on the cross. We are separated from it, but now he combines that with a command to kill sin, a command to not do it. Don't let sin reign. Don't present your your uh, your members as instruments of unrighteousness. So a beautiful picture of sanctification uh, right there in that first example. Let's look at another one. 1 Peter chapter 2, we've been studying in this for the last few weeks, says this, He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Once again, there's this picture of, of Christ's glorious triumph on the cross over the power of sin. He died not just to forgive sin, but he died that we would be separated from its tendrils, that we would no longer be enslaved to it. We now have a choice. But listen, this is, the, this is what Peter called us to just a few verses earlier. He said this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now what Peter is saying here is telling us, don't you revile. Don't you try to get revenge. Don't you insult or threaten back. You see, Peter never assumed that those sins of threatening and reviling would never be present in a believer. He never assumes that the way the cross kills sins is just automatic. Instead, he names those sins and he calls for our obedience on the basis of the cross. So once again, we see this pattern. Christ conquers sin on the cross, and then he commands us on the basis of that victory not to sin. Here's a third illustration, again, from Peter. In one of our first studies when we opened up, we saw this great teaching in 1 Peter 1.3. It says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the miraculous work of regeneration. We are a new creation. God has turned us from people who love sin into people who love righteousness, from people who love darkness into people who love 
the light, from, from people who embrace lies to people who now love the truth. This is a work of the Spirit. God did that. But with that in mind, watch what Peter says just a few verses later, First Peter 2, 1. He says, So therefore, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, why would he say that? You've been born again to a living hope. You've got the Spirit of God in you. You've got spiritual DNA coursing through your body. You love truth and you hate a lie. You love God. You... you, you all everything has been changed. Why in the world would he then bother to name specific sins? Because that's the way God designed it. That's the way God designed sanctification to work. Christ conquers sin on the cross, and then he commands us to put off what he's already conquered. Peter doesn't say, well, you know what? Christ killed sin on the cross. I don't even need to deal with that. I don't need to name those sins. No. No, that's not the way God designed it. And preaching any other way and teaching any other way is not submitting to Scripture. It's not submitting to God's way, and it's wrong. One final uh, example, which I think is uh, a really good one, is is Paul's letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, a passage of Scripture we're all very familiar with. He says this, But the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, here we are given this scripture. It's a beautiful scripture, this idea that we are indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit is in us. He's producing these incredible fruits in our life. It's a beautiful picture. It's a very positive picture of the Christian life. What if we said, let's just preach that. Love, joy, peace, that's all we need. We've got the Holy Spirit. Let's just preach that. But that's not what Paul did. In fact, in that very same chapter, Paul very pointedly lists specific sins. He says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then Paul adds, by the way, writing to Christians, he says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Paul, just because you've got the Spirit, just because he's producing those things in you, he doesn't Stop there. He lets you see the other side. Don't do these other things. You see, churches who don't directly address sin are missing something that Paul saw as absolutely essential. Yes, Christ conquers the works of the flesh, but then he turns around and warns us, don't do those things. I've warned you, I've told you before, that those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I ask again, why? Why would he do that? Why would he list the works of the flesh and tell us not to do them if the Spirit is producing this fruit in us? Because God designed it that way. So here's the thing. God conquers our commands by the Spirit, and then he commands that we kill those sins by the same Spirit. That's the way he set it up. Let's not try and be smarter than God. Let's not try and be wiser 
in our own thinking that we're wiser than Scripture. No, no. God has set up the biblical pattern and His churches and His pastors and His teachers, we are to be obedient to that pattern. Now, I bring all that up because today in our uh, passage in 1 Peter, we're going to see another example of this same illustration where Peter is going to call out specific uh, sins. Now, before we get to it, let's make sure we understand the context. Last week, we finished up with uh, chapter 3, looked at verses 18 through 22. Let me just summarize that very quickly. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then it says this, He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So there is a beautiful picture that Christ has conquered sin. He's he's conquered it on the cross. That he's he's died for us, a substitutionary atonement. And now he's gone into the heaven, and 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 Satan and his demons and every principality and ruler and power is under uh, his authority. They are subjected to him. Now Peter turns to chapter four. He says, "Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself." with this same way of thinking. Now, this is absolutely the key statement in today's passage. You see, thoughts and purposes arm us, just like a soldier arms himself for battle. The way we think, the way we purpose in our mind, it protects us and it helps us get victories. So Peter says, purpose in your mind to suffer if it's God's will. See, that is what this text, that's what this lesson is all about, is to help you arm yourself, to help you purpose in your mind to suffer so that you're well armed when the time comes. And there are going to be five encouragements he's going to give us. Think about, uh, you could think about these as pieces of armor, just the way a soldier arms himself for battle. Peter wants us to arm ourselves with a certain thought process, a certain way of thinking. Okay? And he's going to give us five encouragements to do that. Number one, he says this. This is what Christ did. You see, Christ purposed to suffer. In John chapter 10, he said this, talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord or, or my own choice. You see, Christ didn't... When, when he got to the garden and he got to those last days... It wasn't that things just overwhelmed him. No, he knew exactly what was going to happen. And he made a choice to walk through it. He purposed in his mind. He chose suffering. And of course, now he's called each one of us to take up our cross and follow him. The question is, are we willing to do the same? You know, over the years, I'm sure we've all thought about this. What would happen if it came to a point in our life where... Uh, we were faced with uh, imprisonment or we were faced with torture or we were faced with martyrdom uh, because of our faith. Would Would we be willing to give up our life? Would we be willing, as many others have done, to give up our freedom? I don't know if it'll ever come to that. I don't believe it'll ever come to that in this country. I could be wrong. But I will tell you this, what, what will definitely, there will be lesser forms of this suffering. For example, are you willing to be maligned and insulted? 
Or are you willing to lose your job? See, the fact is, what I want you to see this morning and get here is don't wait until you're faced with that situation. I remember years ago when I led the youth group here at the church and I would talk to them about temptation. And, and I would say to them, don't wait until you're in the situation to make up your mind. Go ahead and make up your mind today. Make the decision today. If that ever happens, this is what I'm going uh, to do. You know, I think about soldiers who, who go through training and training and training. And the idea is when they're faced with a situation in the battlefield, they'll already know what to do. This is what Peter's talking about. Arm yourself with this thought. Arm yourself by purposing in your mind that I will follow Christ no matter what. Make that decision uh, today. Number two, the second P, uh, encouragement that uh, Peter wants us to give us to, to think this way is he wants us to understand that being willing to suffer makes a clean break from sin. Let, let's read those first two verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then he says this, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, this is a this can be a difficult statement to interpret. Um, there are a couple things in this passage that are difficult. And this is one of them where he says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I believe what he means is this. If you come to a point in your life and you have to you there's a there's something in front of you. I have to make a decision. I'm either going to suffer for Christ or I'm going to back away. When you make that decision to step over that line if you will and suffer for Christ, you have made at that point a decisive break with sin. You have made a choice. I choose suffering over sin. You see, the fact is, if you don't choose suffering, in many, in most cases that I can think of, you're choosing sin. You're denying truth. You're denying Christ. You're, 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 you're denying Him in some way, and you're choosing sin. But if you choose suffering, you are proving that your bondage to sin has been broken. So I think that's what we need to get in our head, is that Christ is worth suffering for. And we should live out that conviction every single day of our lives. And when the, when the time comes, when the choice comes between suffering for Christ or sin, I will choose suffering. And when you make that choice, sin suffers a decisive defeat in your life. So if you've ever come to that point where you have to choose sin or suffering and you choose suffering, you're not perfect. That's not what Peter is saying. But you have made a decisive break with sin in your life. Now, why am I pretty sure that's what he means? Because he describes that break in verse 2. Remember what he said? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, I think when you choose suffering for Christ, you are basically saying, I'm anything in my life, is, is, is worth putting away. Christ is my main uh, passion. Christ is my main treasure. Christ is everything to me. And when, that, when, you, when you say that in your heart by, by stepping into suffering on His behalf, oh my goodness, you have broke with human passions and you've made a decision to live the rest of your life for the will of God.
You see, when you choose to suffer for what's right, it's a sign. It's a sign that you've renounced sinful human desires and you've embraced the will of God as your true passion. Number three, Peter wants us another encouragement, another piece of the armor, if you will, to help us have the right mindset. Is He wants us to understand that any amount of past sinning is enough. Look at verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now this is a a very simple, yet it's really a remarkable statement. He says, any time you've spent sinning in the past, that's enough. Don't do it anymore. See, once again, Peter is following that biblical pattern of sanctification. Yes, Christ suffered for sin. Yes, Christ conquered sin on the cross. Now don't do it anymore. Enough is enough. You see, the fact is, if you sinned just a little before you were converted, that's enough. If you sinned a lot before you were converted, it's enough. Peter says it's not the amount of time. It, once you've once you've turned from it, that's sufficient. Don't don't let's don't be those people that say you want to flirt with sin just a little longer. No. No, that's what he's saying. In the same way that Paul said, don't let sin reign. Don't present your members. Um, The same thing, in the same way here, Peter is saying, listen, that's enough. No, you don't need any more. Make the break. Choose the will of God for your life. If you must suffer for it, then suffer for it. And by the way, I want you to see the suffering he has in mind for you here in verse 4. He says this, with respect to this, not engaging in those uh, patterns of behavior, he says they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They malign you. See, he's not talking here about physical torture. He's not talking about imprisonment. He's not talking about martyrdom. He's, He's just talking about the fact that people will slander you. People will insult you. They'll call you a fool. They'll call you a Neanderthal. They'll call you a close-minded bigot. They will slander you. And when you do, when they do, you always have a choice. Do I choose the truth? Do I choose the light? Do I choose the will of God? Or do I back off and choose sin? You see, the fact is there are Christians all over this world today, churches all over this world, that are backing off from the truth because the world is maligning them. What will we do? You see, it's better to embrace suffering as Jesus did if it's God's will than to back away from the truth and choose sin. Peter said the time you spent in that area, it's enough. Arm yourself with that thought. Number four. He wants us to know that those that do malign us will be brought to justice. Verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. By the way, this seems to come up over and over again. as We've seen it several times in Peter's letters so far. You don't have to have the last word. You don't have to get vengeance. You don't have to vindicate yourself. Leave it to God. God is keeping accounts. God is keeping record. He will vindicate you. And He'll do a much better job than you and I could ever do for ourselves. And and by the way, Peter wants us to know, don't think that death somehow rescues them 
he said it very clearly. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. See, death is no escape. Um, I hear this all the time. In fact, Kathy and I was, was watching a show the other night on uh, on this Jeffrey Epstein uh, guy who basically lived a life of luxury and he was a pedophile and and when he was finally uh, going to be brought to justice and when he was, he was put in a jail cell he ended up committing suicide and and I heard many people say well he he got away with murder he escaped justice no he didn't no he didn't you see that jail sentence may have never been carried out and as time goes on, what his what he did will be long forgotten by the public and they'll have moved on to something else. And in fact, his death came after a very long and comfortable life of sin. But let me tell you, God doesn't forget. God never forgets. So when you suffer wrongly and you feel that somebody gets away with it, listen, don't feel that way. Leave it in there. Nobody is getting away with anything. Leave it in the hands of God. He will justly judge the living and the dead. The fifth thing that Peter wants to leave us with, this fifth piece of armor, if you will, is we will triumph over death. Verse 6, he says this, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now this is a once again, a, a difficult verse to understand. Let's, let's back up to verse 5 and let's read it in context. It says, They, talking about people who have done you wrong, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he says this, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So I think this is what Peter is saying. For this is why the gospel's been preached. The gospel is preached to save people from judgment, right? And that's what he's talking about. The gospel has been preached even to those who are dead. Now, he's not talking uh, that somehow somebody went into the region of the dead and preached to people who are already dead. He's talking about the gospel is preached to people who were once living, but now they're dead. And he says that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. You see, I think the point of this verse is to encourage us that even though we're all going to die, and even though there is a judgment coming beyond the grave, nevertheless, those who hear and believe the gospel in this life will live in the Spirit according to the will of God. You know, I can, I can picture in that day how, how Christians were being maligned. In the same way that, that they're, they're still being maligned today. You know, somebody that's sitting out there may look at us and say, you know what, you guys are crazy. You guys are a bunch of fools. We're out here partying. We're, 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 we're engaging in all this sinful behavior. And, and you're trying to live this holy life. You're trying to live this life where you're not doing all these things. And at the end of the day, we all die. At the end of the day, we all go to the worms. That, that's the kind of slander that Christians have to endure. And Peter's armor against this is simply this. Think about your dead Christian friends. Think about your dead Christian family. People who served the Lord, walked in holiness, and now they're dead. To the world, it may look like the believer and the unbeliever are at the same place, but they're not. Those people are alive in the Spirit, and they are with the Lord. A couple of closing thoughts, if you will. 
as I've been going through Peter the past few weeks uh, with all the stuff that's been happening, first with the virus and now with the uh, with the protests and the riots and all the stuff that's been going on, there's not a day goes by that I am not literally astounded at how relevant this letter is for today. You see, the fact is, I see our choices as Christians becoming clearer and clearer every single day. I was reminded the other day of, of Jack Phillips. Many of you know the story of Jack Phillips. He's the uh, he owns uh, the Masterpiece Bakery, the the up in Oregon, and he makes wedding cakes and things like that. and And about seven years ago, he was approached by a homosexual couple who wanted him to decorate a cake uh, in honor of their wedding. Um, and he said no. He he gladly would sell them. They had been in there before. He had sold them. Uh, cakes and other things, he would gladly sell them a cake, but what he would not do is use the artistic talent that God had given him to to decorate that cake, uh, to put a message on that cake in support of homosexual marriage. He just wouldn't do that. The man was slandered. Uh, He received death threats. The, The state of Oregon levied a huge fine against him. Um, he, he, he basically had at some point quit making uh, wedding cakes. He just stopped. Um, he lost employees. It's been going on now. It's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said the state was wrong, and then the state turned right around and did it uh, again. He has suffered greatly for his faith. You see, over and over, issue after issue, controversy after controversy, sin after sin, if you really look at each situation and you trace it back up, it always comes down to one watershed issue. Do we treasure the will of God above everything else? Do we treasure the will of God above everything else? And by the way, the will of God is clearly revealed uh, in His Word. That's where He reveals His will. So the question becomes, not only do do we savor the will of God, do we savor the Word of God? And will we submit to it even when the world maligns us for it? Let me tell you, in the days ahead, I believe this issue is going to face each and every Christian. It's going to face us uh, in our workplace as individuals. It's going to uh, uh, face us in our schools. It's going to face us in our our neighborhoods. Will we choose God's will no matter what, like Jack Phillips and suffer the consequences? Or will we back off? Will we give in to avoid the suffering? Which one will you do? Which one will I do? See, what Peter wants us to see, and what I want you to see, is make your choice now. Don't wait. Don't wait till the situation overwhelms you. Don't don't wait till then. Make your mind up today. Go ahead and decide. If this ever comes, I will do this. If this situation ever faces me, this is what I'm going to do. Purpose in your mind today that you will walk in holiness. Purpose in your mind that you're going to make a decisive break with sin and choose God's will. Arm yourself with these thoughts. Let's pray. Father, as always, thank you for your word. Thank you for a word that was relevant 2,000 years ago and is just as relevant today. Help us be a people who treasure your will and treasure your word above everything else in our life, above our job, above our money, 
above our, our status in society, uh, above our, our following on Twitter or whatever the, else, the case may be. God, we want to put you first. But help us, Lord, to arm ourselves the way Christ did, to make that choice today, not to wait, but go ahead and decide today that anything, anything is worth having you. Nothing can be compared to a relationship with you and what awaits us in glory. We praise you and we honor you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.